today on Building the Open Metaverse. On the one hand, we all share that excitement over what these systems can do. Um, on the other hand, uh, we're committed to the idea that, uh, that none of this works unless creators can uh, get uh, uh, credit and money for, uh, for their, their contributions. Welcome to Building the Open Metaverse, where technology experts discuss how the community is building the open metaverse together. Hosted by Patrick Cozy from Cesium and Mark Petit from Epic Games. Hello, everyone, and welcome to our show, Building the Open Metaverse, the podcast where technologists share their insight on how the community is building the open metaverse together. My name is Mark Petit from Epic Games, and my co-host is Patrick Cozy from Cesium. Patrick, how are you today? Hi, Mark. Well, we have a fantastic guest, so I'm doing amazing. Yeah, no, I think you're exci as excited as me to welcome Neil Stephenson to the show. As many of you know, Neil coined the term metaverse in his book, Snow Crash, which was published back in 1992. Neil, it was great to have you speak at our panel at Sigraph, and we really wanted to share your insight and vision with our audience. So welcome to the podcast. Thanks. I really enjoyed the experience at Sigraph, uh, and so uh, I'm looking forward to uh, talking about this stuff more with you guys today. Thanks, Neil. So. So you have a really uh, fascinating background, and could we start off by you sharing, you know, what led to your interest in computer graphics, and what was happening in the industry in the early '90s that ultimately led you to write Snow Crash? Yeah, so uh, I mean, I've been programming computers since I was 14 years old, in one way or another. Um, but um, uh, and I was always interested in graphics, so I got a Mac as soon as they were available. Um, anyway, uh, in 1988, I started a uh, graphic novel project with an artist friend of mine named Tony Sheeter. And we, um, to make a long story short, uh, the, the project didn't really go anywhere commercially, but uh, we wanted to use computer graphics to generate some of the imagery. And I ended up doing a lot of work uh, in 1988, 89, 90, uh, programming um, a Mac II, souped up with some transputer boards to, uh, to do image processing. And uh, as part of that, I went to um, SIGGRAPH in 1990 um, and got exposed to a lot of what was happening in the space then. So the conclusion I came to was that um, computer graphics was right on the threshold of becoming a, just a fascinating new communications medium. Um, and uh, even though what we had then was primitive compared to what we have now, you could see how it was going to develop. You could see that, for example, with RenderMan, it was possible to write a few lines of code that would generate uh, a three-dimensional rendering or a two-dimensional rendering of a three-dimensional scene. Um, and there were a lot of other uh, early precursors there that um, it didn't take a lot of, of insight to see that it was all going to add up to, um, to a new medium. And the, the only question in my mind was, how can we make it cheap and ubiquitous? Um, because I had spent a lot of money um, buying equipment and it was hard to use and I had to write all the code myself. And so I was asking myself, if you look at television, for example, in the thirties, it was similarly uh, kind of a primitive, expensive laboratory 
curiosity. But a couple of decades later, it was televisions were a ubiquitous appliance in people's homes. And how did that transformation happen? Well, the, you know, it happened because there was programming uh, that people <clears throat> wanted to enjoy. Um, and so uh, because of, you know, I Love Lucy and the Ed Sullivan Show and and other programs like that, uh, millions of people went out and, and bought these things. The cost of producing them went down. The level of quality went up. We got color TV. You know, we got bigger screens. So the question was, what could trigger a similar transformation that would make computer graphics into a ubiquitous uh, medium? And my, my guess at the time was this idea of the metaverse. Um, and since the, the graphic novel project had come to an end by that point, I just sat down and wrote a new book, um, Snow Crash, uh, in which the metaverse obviously plays a, a central role. You know, it was interesting to know that you 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 thought about that before a game like Doom even existed. I mean, there was a lot of foresight right there. Yeah, Doom came out the year after Snow Crash was published, and it shocked me uh, in a good way that uh, because I had done enough um, playing around with um, with rendering to know that um, that uh, Carmack. You know, and company had achieved something incredible uh, by making the uh, hardware of that era actually render convincing three-dimensional uh, graphics. Um, I, I wouldn't have thought it was possible in 1993. So at SIGGRAPH, you know, you mentioned that, you know, the key to bringing billions of people into the metaverse is to create engaging experiences. And you said something interesting, and I quote you there. You said, the basic problem to be solved is in all creative industries is how to get artists to make art in a coherent and coordinated way. And then you, you went on and talked about the tug of war between artists and the suits, you know, the investor, the executive, and that how it impacts the risk reward, uh, you know, often at the expense of creativity. I thought it was a fascinating topic about re the re-enablement of the creative. So how, how do we achieve that? So, yeah, like the, as you'll, understand given your your position at, at epic um the um these experiences that we call video games uh are huge collaborations i mean there's indie games there's even some games that you know that are made by one individual who does everything um but uh, a lot of games involve hundreds or more of collaborators with different areas of specialization. You'll have texture artists, you'll have animators, sound people, music writers. Um, and um, just like in making a movie, all of those people have to work together in a coherent way um, and, uh, and they have to get paid. <clears throat> so um, we have a system for doing that in the film industry and it works. I mean, we have movies, but it's it's unwieldy and um, and it's expensive, um, and it, it requires um, that it requires financing. I mean, you you need to find investors who are willing to place bets 
on uh, on projects that might take years to get finished, and then um, you know it's what they call hit-based investing. I mean, the, the the project, regardless of of how successful it is creatively, it might be a huge hit uh, at the box office, or it might completely fail and nobody knows why nobody can completely predict it. Um, you have to invest in a lot of movies, um, then spread the risk out over a lot of projects. So, um, so how do we solve the financing problem, um, for, for games and, and for, for metaverse experiences, the, the old system, uh, in Hollywood, I should say I'm in I'm in Hollywood now. I'm in I'm in Beverly Hills at the Code Conference, so you can see the the palm trees, you know, and the the Beverly Hills, you know, rising up above me. Um, in the old system, you've got studio executives who who have tried to read the tea leaves and look at the the uh, the financial, the box office uh, numbers, and figure out what well, what movies are people going to want to watch next year. We'll we'll put our we'll invest our our money in that, um, and um, and that's because the 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 data stream is a very thin one. It's it's uh, the signal is very weak. Basically, people, moviegoers either either go to the theater and buy a ticket or they don't. Um, and you aggregate all of that data and you look at it. <clears throat> you try to figure out, try to make decisions as to where to where to put your money. Um, it seems that on the in the internet we now have much richer streams of data coming back from the users um, and uh, and um, Games, uh, um, you know, games used to be installed and just played on a, they could be played on a computer that wasn't even connected to the internet, but now everything's on the internet and you can instrument your games, the code in your games and people, you know, all companies do now instrument their games. So they know exactly which features uh, are uh, interesting to players. Um, and uh, what succeeds and what fails. Um, so it seems as though it ought to be possible to kind of cut the studio executives out of the, the decision loop and, um, and try to uh, figure out a way to directly monetize those aspects of a, uh, an online experience that, uh, that uh, the players um, uh, most enjoy. You know, it, it feels, at least, you know, six months to a year ago that, you know, NFTs and the ability to, for creators to sell their art directly to consumer on, onto novel platform would be a very promising uh, avenue. And some, I'm actually, some, some, some artists made a lot of money through the transition. So today, I think I was reading this morning that, the, you know, the, the volume of NFTs is down 99% on OpenSea. It's down, it's down 99%. Wow. But still, you know, the, the creators need new platforms. And as you say, being at the mercy of studio executives, there is a promise in the metaverse and the creator economy of a direct 
you know, transaction-driven process. They should they should be valuable for the for the artists, for the creators. Do you believe in that? Well, it seems that as though it should be possible in in principle, right? And um, so that's kind of where we are today. The um, NFTs, I think, were the first stab at this, and um, there's a lot. Uh, I mean, if, if you look at the the way that those contracts are, are structured, and you know what's actually being bought and sold, it's a uh, a very primitive. Um, process today. So, um, you know, I've, I've bought a, a couple of pieces of NFT art and, you know, the whole process of setting up a wallet and, um, and uh, uh, doing the transaction and then looking at the NFT after you've bought it is uh, incredibly cumbersome and, um, uh and there's there's kind of some stress involved in it, like like there you you read all the time about various hacks and various um, uh, you know data breaches and so on that happen in this world, and uh, no one likes to um, be sitting there worrying, you know, about you know are are hackers draining my bank account you know because i didn't patch my software at the right time or because i clicked on the wrong link um so i think we're in the very very early days of of the nft market um but it is definitely the case that there are artists who uh are uh are succeeding at this and they're not just making kind of junk uh you know there are legitimate uh, artists making uh, completely worthwhile pieces of art and selling them into this market. Um, and uh, um, so um, I, I'm, I'm hoping that things will, will kind of resolve themselves and, and settle out, um, you know, over the next year or so. So switching gears a little bit, let's talk about AI. I mean, thinking back to the Open Metaverse course at SIGGRAPH, uh, AI art was repeatedly mentioned. And for someone like me who doesn't have any artistic skill, you know, the idea of doing natural language and then having that generate an image or a model, you know, is very appealing. Um, and then for, you know, more advanced content creators, you know, using AI to, you know, help with rigging, uh, it seems like a very exciting direction. You know, I'm curious, you know, how do you think AI will impact creators uh, and their creator economy? We've been talking about this a lot uh, lately in inside of um, of the startup I co-founded, Lamina One, um, because um, you know a lot of what it's it's a little bit of a mixed uh, picture because uh, on the one hand we all share that excitement over what these systems can do, um, on the other hand. Uh, we're committed to the idea that uh, that none of this works unless creators can uh, get uh, uh, credit and money for uh, for their their contributions. And um, one of the um, observations that's been made about these systems is that, if, if I say I want a picture of a palm tree in the style of Leonardo da Vinci, 
the system is going to go and find a bunch of old Leonardo da Vinci images and it's going to use those to, to create that image. But if I say that I, I want that in the style of a, a living artist, then the system's going to do the same thing by drawing upon uh, the uh, imagery that it can find uh, uh, of work that that artist has performed. And at that point, um, there's uh, some serious ethical uh, considerations that, that come into play. Like, shouldn't, shouldn't a living artist or the estate of an artist um, get, get fairly compensated if their work is going to be used in that way? Um, so um, my, uh, <clears throat> my co-founder, Peter uh, Vestinus, has actually uh, got a paper in the works um, where he instrumented uh, some, some of this code to actually keep track of the degree of influence that different inputs had on the, the final result, uh, and it actually works. Um, so I'm hoping he'll publish that on our site pretty soon. But um, the, the, the basic finding, which I'm sure could be duplicated by other people if they wanted to try this, is that uh, if you understand how this code works, how it generates uh, uh, these these results, uh, uh, you can actually track the degree of influence that any given image or any given input had on the, the final result. And then if that final result is worth something, um, then maybe there's a way to uh, to give credit and and some compensation um, in proportion to uh, to those inputs. I think if if we just had like you know, tracking secondary sales so that artists can benefit from secondary sales it would be already a, a great step forward. Right, which is which is a, a feature that you can build in, as you know, to you can build that into a smart contract, and and many NFT artists kind of rely on that um, as a a long tail uh, of possible revenue. That's that would be such a huge progress. So. So let's talk a little bit about Lamina One. Just for the record, you wrote Cryptonomicon. It was explicitly about cryptocurrency. When was that? 1999. So it was pre, pre blockchain. So you must have thought a lot about those cryptocurrencies and, you know, where we are today, there's a lot of negative opinions about crypto, even some hostility. So what is your, your take on that? And how do we turn the tide around? Because there seems to be value in the concept behind crypto, which I was discussing the value for creators and, so how do we turn the tide here? Yeah, there's definitely value. I mean, I think Bitcoin prior to the crash was something like a trillion dollars of valuation. So um, I think of it in terms of signal to noise ratio. So um, the um, signal is what is a currency actually worth and the noise is What's the uncertainty around it? So, um, in uh, in with a traditional fiat currency like dollars or euros, um, people use those all the time to buy potatoes, gasoline, steel, um, and so that's a very strong signal that tells you what that currency is worth and. 
some people speculate uh, on currencies, uh, on traditional currencies, um, and that might introduce a little bit of noise, but still the signal to noise ratio is very strong. In the case of a lot of cryptocurrencies, um, a, a great deal of the traffic of the transactions that happen are uh, speculative in nature. Um, and there's not much, these currencies sometimes aren't used that much for normal economic transactions. Um, so, um, <clears throat> so it's hard to know what they're worth. The signal to noise ratio is really bad. Um, and the result is volatility and uh, it's a volatility adds to more volatility as people become uh, nervous about the, uh, the true value of these things. So uh, I think that the way to get a strong signal and to, um, uh, to establish the stable value of uh, such a currency is by actually using it for economic transactions. And um, in, uh, <clears throat> in the gaming industry, um, we've got, I think, a model for that because um, uh, a game is um, it's just bits, right? I mean, 20 years ago, maybe a game would ship on a, uh, a DVD-ROM or a cartridge those were just ways of moving bits around. Um, the, uh, the, the real game is bits. Um, and, and yeah, we know that those bits have got a reasonably stable economic value. Um, or if you go to uh, the Epic store or the Steam uh, store, um, there are prices there for um, not only for whole games, but for components of games. Um, you know, asset stores and so on, or add-on packs, UGC. And, and prices there fluctuate, but, um, but still uh, they don't fluctuate that much. Um, uh, so I think we can say that, um, you know, in the, in the economy of the game industry, there is such a thing as, as sort of a stable, fairly stable price, fairly stable economic value of these digital assets. Um, and so uh, what we're intending to do with Lamina One is uh, create a, um, a new layer one currency that is intended for and have optimized for those kinds of, of transactions. Um, and uh, we hope to see it um, you know, we're not going to do an initial coin offering or anything like that that um, that that feels speculative in nature. We're going to um, instead try to get creators using this uh, as a uh, a way to do business, um, and um, and and we want to see it being used uh, as a, a, a common currency. Um, that uh, will have value, uh, not because people are, are speculating on it, but because people are using it um, to uh, buy and sell digital uh, goods. Well, that, that, so that focus on, you know, uh, for Lamina One to focus on, on art and creators and digital goods, I think is 
uh, is fascinating and I wish you success because I think we, um, I think Roger need that, you know, on our station, we tried to introduce NFTs at the wrong time. It did not quite work out, but uh, we do see pent up demand for a, uh, a, a tool, a solution uh, for artists and creators. So we wish you luck with Lamina One. So can you speak to some of the most difficult challenges of blockchain, uh, you know, and who's trying to solve them? You mentioned in your SIGGRAPH uh, address, you know, some, some companies like Bcopy and uh, can you come back on some of those, uh, you know, core challenges that are top of mind for you? Yeah. So, I mean, I should say that although I'm a reasonably technical guy uh, that um, I'm not an expert on blockchains and cryptocurrencies. It's a, a thing I've followed at arm's length for for a long time, but um, I've always uh, uh, found it uh, uh, a challenging thing to, to fully understand. And um, I, I like to leave it to experts because if you make a mistake and do it wrong, the consequences can be bad. So, uh, so for... Um, for any kind of detailed technical conversation about the the chain and and crypto, uh, I would uh, I get you in touch with with Peter, um, who can speak to that. But um, coming at it from kind of my end of things, which you know has to do with the creator economy and so on, um, there's a uh, uh, um, there's a concept that um, that Jaron Lanier has talked about, probably others as well, but I, I know Jaron, so I think of it as a Jaron thing, um, which is the idea of a value chain. Um, and um, so uh, I'll give you an example. Um, let's say that I were to write a book um, that had a magic sword that was just described in the book. Well, maybe I'd like to see that used in a game or a metaverse experience. Um, I could put something on a blockchain uh, describing the sword and maybe have a little sketch that I draw on an envelope um, and some words of description. Um, and that's enough for me to say, I created this idea on such and such day, but that's a far cry from being an asset that could actually be used in an experience. Um, so um, somebody might then come along and take that and um, create um, an uh, asset um, that could be sold on the Unreal Asset Store or the Unity Asset Store um, that uh, that a game maker could buy and drag into their game. Um, but even that isn't yet a fully usable integrated asset because um, um, just having it in a folder in the game directory um, doesn't doesn't uh, create a good experience. You've got to, uh, you probably want your uh, art director to make a pass over it and make the appearance of those, the sword consistent with uh, the overall art, you know, direction of the game. Uh, you, 
you you've got sound designers who uh, need to do something similar with uh, with the sounds that it makes when it's used, um, and you've got programmers who need to uh, using blueprints or C++ who need to integrate the sword into the game um, so that it uh, it actually is capable of doing something and contributing to the experience. So um, at each stage, uh, more value is being added. And at the end of that process, you've got something that might actually bring in some revenue. Um, and when that revenue finally appears, uh, what you'd like it to do is propagate backwards. Um, and you'd like the different people who contributed to the value chain um, to get compensated in some way. Um, so the, the question in front of us is how to set that up. And um, <clears throat> in Hollywood, um, uh, there's an idea called a waterfall, you know, just how does money flow down um, to the different people involved in a project? It works, but it's cumbersome and expensive. Um, in uh, we've been working with a, a, a company called Neon Machine in in Seattle, which uh, is working on a game called Shrapnel. Uh, that's going to be a blockchain NFT game, and um, they've been developing um, some ideas for new kinds of smart contracts that would solve some of the problems I've just been describing. Uh, and it's not only a matter of, of sending money back up the value chain, but there's also um, ways to build in uh, permissions. So um, as the original creator of the idea, I might not approve of all of the ways in which it gets adapted. You know, some troll might take it and use it to make something that I find objectionable or uh, uh just bend it out of, of uh, all, past all recognition. And so at that point, I'd like to be able to say, I withdraw my approval for this. You know, I don't consider this to be a legitimate use of my, of my work. Uh, so these are all, uh, I think, advances <clears throat> in how smart contracts work and how NFTs work that we can look forward to in coming um, coming months and years and um, um, I'm, I'm hoping that it'll uh, it's not going to be easy but but I think it's doable and um, you know I, if we can get some people using these ideas and adopting these these contract templates then I, I think we'll uh, have contributed something to the, the open metaverse absolutely uh, I think I remember you mentioned you know the problem of a Having legal binding agreement for things that are on chain and, and assets, either virtual or physical, they don't reside on the chain and trying to find a legal framework to solve those problems. I think we, we have a lot of those issues ahead of us. I'm working with uh, uh, Josh Kramer at um, uh, B Copy, the uh, B K O P Y is the name of a project he's been working on. Um, to address some of these issues. Um, he's a guy who's been programming since he was very young, but uh, he was uh, had a high-ranking position at Amazon Studios for a while. So he he knows a lot about the, the world of IP rights and contracts and how that all works. So uh, he's been looking at the state of NFT 
uh, agreements as they exist today. And it's, it's very primitive and, um, you know, needs a lot of work. So his system is going to involve uh, placing, uh, placing a, a, an agreement, a binding legal agreement on chain. Uh, and then you can, uh, you can make pointers back to that uh, agreement. Um, maybe I should explain that one of the issues with with blockchains is that they're expensive, uh, almost kind of shockingly expensive places to, to store to store data. We're used to being able to store huge documents on, you know, Google Drive or whatever um, for almost no, uh, to, almost for free. But um, uh, storing data on the on the blockchain is much more expensive than that. So you can't, uh, if you've created a, a image or a movie that's you know megabyte or even gigabytes, um, in general, putting that whole thing on a blockchain is prohibitively expensive. Uh, and so what tends to happen in NFT transactions is that the thing on the chain is only a pointer to the, uh, the, the the thing itself, um, but that then gets into a bunch of issues around the the permanence uh, and the stability of the thing that's pointed to. Fascinating, I think. Uh, you know, Lamina One has its work cut out for it. So many problems. Kind of glad, you know, that we're going through a bit of a crypto winter, shaking out the the speculation, and hopefully the good actors remain, and we can build up you know, a stack that's actually useful for the, for the creators. I, I, I hope that uh, in a couple of years, we'll look back on it and, and be glad that, that we launched when we did, which, you know, was really at the absolute bottom of the, 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 the market. Um, so uh, no one can uh, accuse us of, of surfing on the, you know, a wave of, uh, of of unhinged speculation. Does Lamina One have a view on the environmental concern around the amount of compute necessary to run crypto? You guys probably know this, but but for people in the audience who who uh, who don't, um, the um, the first blockchain layer one blockchain was was Bitcoin, which um, relies on an idea called proof of work. Uh, so the way that you, you know, with any currency, the issue is how do you prove that it's not counterfeit? And there's a way to do that uh, by basically solving big math problems. Um, and uh, it's called proof of work. And um, it, it, it works, but um, as Bitcoin has uh, become a very large industry, uh, Solving those math problems has ended up consuming an unbelievable amount of, of energy, and so uh, there's a lot of concern about that for very good reasons. Um, there are other ways to to back a currency, um, and uh, proof of stake is uh, is one that consumes orders of magnitude less energy. And so Ethereum, for example, has started out as proof of work, but any day now they're going to switch over to uh, a proof of stake system uh, that's going to be much more environmentally benign. Um, 
so uh, we're going to use, of course, we're going to use a, a proof of stake system that you know is as uh, efficient as as we can make it. Um, it still is going to consume some energy, and um, we would prefer not to uh, have any carbon footprint at all or even be carbon negative, meaning that as this system is used, the amount of CO2 in the atmosphere actually goes down. Um, so uh, we're going to build that in. Uh, one of the advantages of starting a layer one chain um, is that it gives you the freedom to make engineering decisions. Uh, and one of those decisions is going to be that in order to operate a node, which is the kind of the thing that consumes the energy uh, on, on the network, uh, you need to be able to prove that you purchased carbon credits um, from a legitimate uh, supplier. Not, not all carbon credits are created equal, so there's a whole additional layer of complexity around figuring out which ones of those are uh, are worth buying um, <clears throat> but we want to build that in and we're we're even looking at some um, some more ambitious uh, ideas on the carbon side of things that are currently too crazy to talk about so they'll they'll be in a separate a separate lane yeah, I appreciate your your concerns around the environment there. Uh, we wanted to do a couple of topics around your thoughts on the future. Um, so earlier in the podcast, you, know, you mentioned that you're impressed with Doom and the graphics that were, was being done there in the early 90s. And since then, really, the gaming industry has helped drive the decline in the cost for, for GPUs and graphics. Uh, we're curious, you know, what do you think the most disruptive industry will, will be moving forward? You know, in a lot of ways, I've gotten out of the future predicting game because um, – the uh, the future is coming too fast. Uh, when I was working on um, Fall or Dodge and Hell, my second to the most recent novel, I wrote a whole bit about social media that I thought was very futuristic. And you know, here's here's Neil being the the uh, the great predictor of the future. And then when when Trump got elected. I just had to tear it all out and redo it because what had really happened was so much crazier than what I had written that um, uh, I, I had to, to redo the, the work. Um, but um, boy, disruptive stuff now um, is uh, I'm very interested in what's happening with big traditional infrastructure heavy industries around energy particularly I think that um, the uh, cost of photovoltaics um, has been just plummeting steadily year after year and it's one of these things that we don't we don't necessarily notice the the change from day to day, but but suddenly if if you look at a graph of, of what's happened in that market, um, it's it's a huge change, and I think that we're we're kind of approaching a, a crossroads where um, our 
uh, a lot of our thought habits, a lot of our, our instincts around the environment and energy um, are, are going to be challenged because um, we're used to thinking that um, it's always good to conserve energy. You should turn off the light, you know, in the room that you're not using. You should, you should never, um, you should never waste anything uh, because we, we sort of assume that all energy production is, is, is bad, that it's, uh, we act as though it's all coming from a coal fired power plant somewhere. Um, and in some places it is. So if you live in one of those areas, you should definitely try to conserve electricity. But, uh, but in a lot of places is coming from, from clean sources now. And it, a lot more is going to have to happen uh, for us to get out of the mess that we're in. So I, I think what we're going to see in the next few decades is huge amounts of photovoltaic uh, capacity coming online. We're going to see uh, nukes are making a comeback. Um, and uh, and wind turbines are going up all over the place. I was in Iowa a couple of weeks ago, and there's just huge fields of wind turbines going off to the horizon. Um, and when you're generating power using those kinds of technologies, it's okay to to use energy. Um, there's nothing wrong with it. And if you're using the energy to uh, have a beneficial effect to, to withdraw carbon from the atmosphere, let's say, uh, then it's it's good. Um, but it goes against a lot of the, uh, the environmental dogma that we were all uh, brought up to, to believe in. Yeah, you know, he gave me a flashback when I was a kid growing up. I used to get grounded if I left the lights on. Yeah. Well, yeah, so it's, part, it's partly just the... Um, you know, the traditional, you, know, you should never, you know, waste not, what not kind of mentality, but it's reinforced by the environmental uh, argument as well. Um, but uh, uh, the, the mentality that says we should not build things uh, is going to get in the way. It's, gonna, it's already getting in the way. Uh, the, there was a whole controversy in New England about uh, building some power lines that would bring uh, hydroelectric power from uh, Quebec down uh, towards New York. Um, you know, by almost any measure, that is a good thing to do uh, environmentally. Um, but local groups, you know, we're, we're using environmental regulations from the 70s, you know, to sort of block the, the building of those those power lines. Uh, we're going to see more of those those conflicts uh, coming up. So Neil, if I could ask one more prediction related question. So thinking again, back to the Open Metaverse course at SIGGRAPH, you know, we had a lot of fantastic speakers like yourself uh, and also Rev from NVIDIA uh, and Rev leads Omniverse there. And he said something really interesting about you know, when our computing powers become powerful enough, we'll, we'll be able to do simulations that are calculating millions of scenarios, and then we'll be able to predict the future, right? So as someone who I believe, Neil, that you've predicted the future many times, you know, how do you feel about this potential? potential? I mean, it, it, it just depends on how good the simulations are, um, you know? So, uh, like, I, I think... For any 
simulation where human decision making and human creativity is in the loop um, that the uh, reliability of those simulations is questionable. Um, so uh, there's always something weird that happens. Um, if, if there's other, uh, you know, if there's more mechanistic um, simulations, uh, then, um, then maybe that could work. Um, but, um, and, you know, people use simulations all the time. Uh, you know, there's, there's a whole field of, of simulation, uh, applied simulation theory called Monte Carlo uh, simulation, where if you can't uh, mechanistically predict something, you just run a bunch of, you know, an ensemble of, uh, of simulations and, and do statistics on the, the output. Um, but um, I think the most important uh, sort of kinds of predictions that we, that we would like to make have to do with humans and how humans behave. And as we've just seen politically in the last decade or so, um, you know, people are very hard to predict. Uh, I don't think many people would have predicted the invasion of Ukraine, but even ones who did predict it probably wouldn't have predicted that Ukraine would fight back as uh, effectively as it has using the, the kinds of, of, of uh, clever ideas and adaptations uh, that they've done. Um, so I guess I'm skeptical. So you were able to envision the metaverse back in 1992 when you told us, you know, you were exposed, you know, you bought computers in the very early stage. You came from a family of engineers and studied physics. So as these things led you to think about the world perhaps differently, so any advice for our younger listeners on what they should be focusing on and doing today? Doing today? Um, I, uh, this may be kind of an old man answer, but I more and more find value in reading history. Um, I gave a commencement talk at um, Berkeley, Berkeley's School of Computer Science, uh, back in, in May. Um, and, um, I just think that, uh, <clears throat> um, it, it's very rare for things to happen today that, that are unprecedented. Um, and, um, if you don't study history, then you're always surprised. And it's easy to, to think that, uh, whatever happens is, is unique. I'm understand. Thank you, Neil. So it's time for our closing remarks. Um, we usually uh, close the podcast with the same two questions. The first question is, was there any topic you would have liked to discuss today that we did not discuss? I mean, this might sound like special pleading, but uh, I, I'm fascinated by what, um, what Epic's doing um, with Unreal Engine and what, uh, what's happening in that ecosystem right now. Um, so um, uh, the, the rise of virtual production and, uh, and um, the bringing so many tools to, to bear. Um, uh, so that's something I follow as much as I have time for, um, but it would probably be getting us very deep into the weeds uh, to, to talk about that in, in detail. 
that could be a whole other episode. So, Neil, last but not least, my favorite question is, uh, do you want to give any shout-outs to a person or an organization? Oh, um, yeah, that's one I probably should have prepared for because my mind always goes blank at times like this. Um, I, guess I already mentioned Anne Applebaum. I think she's one of the most important writers uh in the who's uh, contributing to our intellectual life today uh, both because of her historical writing and because of um, uh, her writing about current events and the, the rise of authoritarianism and and so on and so forth um the um um so big endorsement for her uh i don't know maybe we should just leave it at that uh, as soon as we hang up, I'll think of 12 others that I should have should have mentioned, yeah. Well, Neil Stephenson, thank you very much for being with us today. We wish you the best of luck with Lamina One. It looks like a fantastic project. Thanks. Yeah, no, we, we have our work cut out for us, as you, you pointed out, but uh, but we're looking forward to, to most of that work. Yeah, and it's fascinating to reread your, your, your novels, uh, Cryptonomicon, Snow Crash, of course. I encourage everybody to... To dig into those books, they are, they are quite amazing. Thank you. Very much appreciated. Patrick, it's time to say goodbye. So thank you, Patrick. Thank you, Neil. And we'll be back uh, for a new episode next week. Thank you, everyone. Thank you.